Hi. <laughs> Welcome. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to, we're looking into Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Today we're going to look at the coming of our Lord, both in the rapture and in the second coming. Paul mentions both in Thessalonians. Uh, the rapture, I think what most of us focus on, is for all believers going to be uh, many things. Uh, amazing, exciting, unbelievable, glorious, but also a great relief. Uh, and I call this, uh, this, well, I called it yesterday anyway, <laughs> the psychology of relief. Uh, it is a mental state, a mental state of knowing that whatever your toil is, whatever, whatever is going on in your life that you want to end, eventually it's going to. The toil and struggle of this life is going to end. And therefore, the rapture speaks to us of a mental attitude of courage and peace that comes from knowing without a doubt that the cavalry is coming and coming on time. I add on time because it's not our timing and no one knows the day of the hour. Jesus is coming to transfer his church from this world, the living and the dead, uh, away from the tribulational period. And that is something like the cavalry saving the day. Uh, knowing the relief is coming at the proper time affects the way that you live. However, in real war, relief is not always guaranteed. For instance, I'm quoting from uh, Chris Kyle's book, American Sniper, and this is when he was in Iraq. He writes, By this time we were working with the entire platoon, all 16 of us. We came up to a small building compound at the edge of, edge of a town. Once we were there, we began taking fire. The firefight quickly ratcheted up, and within a few minutes we realized that we were surrounded and our escape cut off by a force of several hundred Iraqis. I started killing a lot of Iraqis. We all were. But for everyone we shot, four or five seemed to materialize to take their place. This went on for hours, with the fighting stoking up, then dying down. Most firefights in Iraq were sporadic. They might be very intense for a few minutes, perhaps even an hour or more, but eventually the Iraqis would withdraw, or we would. That didn't happen here. The fight continued in waves all through the night. The Iraqis knew that they had us outnumbered and surrounded, and they weren't quitting. Little by little, they started getting closer and closer, until it became obvious that they were going to overrun us. <clears throat> we were done. We were going to die. Or worse, we'd be captured and made prisoners. I thought about my family and how horrible that would all be. I determined I was dying first. I fired off uh, more of my rounds, but now the fight was getting closer. <clears throat> I was starting to think about what I would do if they charged us. I'd use my pistol, my knife, my hands, anything, and then I would die. I thought of Taya as his wife and how much I loved her. I tried not to get distracted by anything, tried concentrating on the fight. The Iraqis kept coming. We estimated we had five minutes to live, and I started counting it off in my head. I hadn't gotten very far when our 
<clears throat> company radio squeaked with the transmission, we're coming up on your six. Friendlies were approaching our position, the cavalry. The Marines, actually. We weren't going to die, not in five minutes anyway, thank God. Uh, it doesn't always happen in war and in real life. Well, in a situation of war, you know, people die tragically. But when it comes to the coming of our Lord, it's guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed. The cavalry is coming. But it's coming, and this is what we're going to see today, is not only about relief. Relief is a major aspect of it. This psychology of relief is a, is a very true thing, that our mental attitude has this um, courage, confidence. Can I go another day? Can I go longer? Can I continue to work? Will the suffering continue? No. The day's coming when I will be relieved of duty, I guess. But there's more to it than this. There's much more. And today we're going to see the more. We'll see the relief and we'll see the more. There's more that God and, and through the Apostle Paul have, will reveal to us about how the coming of the Lord affects our everyday lives. So before we sing this morning and get into that word, let's pray. Let's thank God for our opportunity to be together and, and thank him and be humble. If there's anything on your heart that would distract you from God's word, leave that aside. And uh, so that we can focus and uh, glory in and learn from God's Word. With that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our gathering, for the royal family that you have made, that you have made each of us in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All mankind was created in your image. We have fallen, that you have saved us through our Lord and Savior. By his work and his work alone, we are delivered from sin and death. And so, Father, as such, we are your new humanity, your new creatures, your sons and daughters. You have made us alive together with Christ. And as such also, Father, we are brothers and sisters, one to another. We have unity and love and peace and joy in our hearts because of you and because of the life that you have given us. May we heed your word this morning that speaks to us about the impact of the coming of your Son. You are sending to deliver the church and also the world and to bring all humanity into your kingdom, all saved humanity, into your kingdom forever and ever. May its impact upon us be felt immediately. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Christ, will you guide me through this life? Wake me with each morning's light. Oh, and keep my soul through your strength. All my fears will fade away as you lead me in your way. 
Uh, we're going to start in Second Thessalonians chapter one. If you want to turn there, Second uh, Thessalonians is only three chapters long. It's a very short book, as we've noted. <clears throat> it was written uh, probably within a year of First Thessalonians. So these two books kind of go together. Um, actually, the theme of them both is very, very similar. And um, another thing to remember is that they're written in the very early church. This is These are Paul's first written letters to the church. So they're written about 50 A.D. Um, the church is... You know, maybe 15 years old, a little older than that, but um, not very old. And so these believers, and these believers are quite brand new. Uh, as he had been in Thess- Thessalonica just a few months prior to writing these. And uh, so they're new believers. Um, but they find themselves under an enormous amount of pressure and conflict. Um, when I say conflict, I mean they are being persecuted. Uh, and Paul was persecuted in Thessalonica. He had to get out of town quick, and the, he had left behind a brand new church that was surrounded by persecution. Us here in America and the West, we can't, we don't really have a feeling for this. How it would be if your own community were adamantly against you and adamantly, actively persecuting you. And so Paul was very concerned for them. Um, he sent Timothy, after he got into Athens, uh, he sent Timothy to check on them, and he was very happy to hear that the Thessalonians were doing amazingly well spiritually. So he wrote First Thessalonians because of that, and Second Thessalonians follows quickly upon that. The theme here is to live godly, sanctified lives. We're, so our study is about looking for this particular aspect of our study, is looking at all of Paul's, well, really all the New Testament books, from a broad perspective, seeing main themes. We're not going to look at verse by verse so much, for a little while anyway. Uh, and we're going to look at main themes of the books so that we know the main theme as we're interpreting the books, as we're reading through them, as we're studying them. Because you can lose that when you get into the detail. Uh, and so uh, the theme of Thessalonians is to live godly, sanctified lives. It's really both letters are an encouragement to do that. The encouragement, all of us need encouragement. That's something that is another aspect that we'll touch upon. But, um, and I would say, while that's on my heart, look to encourage others in your life, other believers, where we easily get drawn into our own lives and forget that other people around us need encouragement. We are to comfort and encourage one another uh, in, the, in the body of Christ. Paul does that here. Uh, and he encourages them to actually improve in their spiritual lives, to even get better and better, despite the persecution. Uh, so, uh, look at uh, verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. So, and we see this in the first letter and the second letter. They're afflicted. Uh, part of the comfort here is that you don't don't take vengeance, though it is a natural human thing to want to fight back. But God says here, don't do it. I will fight for you. Uh, and so it is only right, Paul, that God will repay them with affliction 
vengeance is the Lord's. Don't fight back. And this is key because it releases from our souls this desire to get back. Revenge is a loser's game. And only God can win at that. And then, wonderfully, Paul says relief is coming. And here's the coming of our Lord. Verse 7. Well, go back to, we'll just read the whole thing. Again, in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who believe, who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So you will be, since you are believers, you will be a part of this. Right? So all believers are going to see this. So, and we're going to get into this on Tuesday. For some, I couldn't fit, anyway, it was too much. So Tuesday's class will be about the rapture and the second coming, and we will distinguish between the two. And we'll see them scripturally. We're not going to do that here. Because in actuality, in these letters, Paul does not go into, he does not care to distinguish between the two. I mean, he does, but that's not the point. The point of Thessalonians is encouragement, not telling us the rapture's here, and then this happens, then this happens, then the second coming. He's He's not giving us a drawn out dispensationalism. Not here. And so we don't want to miss that. Because you can miss the whole point of this. These letters dive into the eschatology, which a lot of people do. And, you know, because eschatology can be exciting, I get it. But when you read this, right, what is this? Is this the rapture or the second coming? And we distinguish between the two here. We're, we'll, well, we'll see that uh, anyway. But... Uh, You know, here it is. Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God. That's not the rapture. Those particular items are the second coming. And so Paul is comforting them, saying, look, relief is coming at the second coming. And if you're a pre-tribulational rapturist like I am, second coming, I'm not even going to be here on earth for that. That's not coming in my lifetime. But isn't it amazing that Paul offers it up as a comfort of relief? Wouldn't we expect Paul to mention the rapture here? Which he will in chapter 4. Of, no, not in this book. Chapter 4 of the last book. In 1 Thessalonians 4 is where the, you know, the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise and we all meet the Lord in the air. That's got rapture written all over it. But he doesn't use that here. He says, be comforted by the second coming of Christ. We say, Paul, I'm not comforted by the second coming. I'm comforted by the rapture. Don't we all do this? I wish the rapture would happen today. <laughs> A lot of heads nodding out there. Right? On those bad days, we like, man, if the rapture happened today, that would be sweet. That would be just fine with me. Well, and in fact, when things are going well for us and we're happy and prosperous, we don't think so much about eschatology as much as we do when we're in pain. It's those painful days that we're like, rapture would be awesome right now. Uh, 
However, what we have here is the second coming. So, what can we pull from this? Um, the fact that there is an end to human history. There is an end. When the rapture happens, the injustice of this world doesn't go away. We go away, but the injustice doesn't. There's a lot of poor souls that are going to be stuck down here having to go through the tribulation. It's the worst period. Jacob's trouble is the worst period in the, in the history of the world, as God says through the prophet Joel. It's Nothing has ever happened like it will happen during that seven-year tribulation. That period, written so much about in the Old Testament, which you can read about in the book of Revelation as well, is a horrible time. So the injustice doesn't go away. But at the second coming, all injustice is gone. Jesus returns to establish the covenants that he has made with Israel, and he will establish them. It will be a perfect. And there won't be, it won't be filled with all perfect people, but they'll be judged immediately. Uh, but my point is not to go into the millennial reign here uh, this morning, but it's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, and then after the millennium comes the final judgment. Even no matter where you are on the spectrum of what your tribulational, rapture, pre-rapture, post-trib, pre-trib, whatever you are, Paul here is saying the end is coming. So be at peace. It's not going to be like this forever. You're not going to be like this forever. And things are going to change. And that is comforting. When we're taught to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? And I, in my book, we should pray it every day uh, on top of your other prayers. But we're told by our Lord, our Father who is in heaven, and also your kingdom come. You know, when we say these words, we're reminded every day that the kingdom is coming. We're reminded of this, that this is not my kingdom. And we can lose sight of that, especially when things are going well. So, uh, as the Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come, the second to last line in the whole Bible is, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So, Paul has in mind just not our relief, though, but the judgment of those who reject the gospel. We read that. All those who reject God oppose God, which is generally where the church gets its opposition from. Sometimes the church gets its opposition from believers, you know, which is a sad state. But for the most part, these who are servants of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan, 2 Corinthians 11, he has ministers in earth who oppose the gospel and oppose the church. And we think, you know, they're getting away with it. They're successful. It's, they're not getting away with anything. And they're never going to be successful. But who's going to judge them? Not me. And, and not you either, by the way. And, and this is something that the, the coming of our Lord teaches us. It's going to be my last point this morning. We have no right to judge anyone. Why? Well, you say, well, I wish I could. The fact is, you can't. None of us can judge another person because we're all flawed. You cannot and I cannot make a perfect judgment on anyone. Only the Lord can. So when the Lord returns, he judges. And he says to us, what? Do not judge until the time comes. When we're in heaven and we're perfect, 
guess what? We're able to judge. And we say, oh, can't wait. But everybody's perfect. So you, you, you know, you don't like you're not going to have the if if you want to judge. I do. <laughs> I'll be honest. There are people I want to judge. I fall into it too. I judge them. But am I right in my judgment? I may even think that I am. I think I got all the facts here, and I can judge. We cannot. And that see, when you realize that you can't judge thoroughly, you stop doing it. If you, if in your heart you say, well, I could judge, I just don't have the right, you're still going to do it. But if you come to the faithful understanding that you have no ability to judge thoroughly, you'd have to have infinite penetrating eyesight into the heart of another, which you don't have. If you know that, you stop judging. That comes from the second coming, or the rapture. So, uh, Chris Kyle was absolutely sure that the Marines were coming. He was not. He thought he was going to die. You know, he's honest in his book. I just finished the book. That's why I went looking for that quote. I was like, cavalry. I, I, Chris mentioned something about that in the book. And was he sure the Marines were coming? He wasn't. See, for us, we're sure that the Lord is coming. And so our mindset is different. I will be delivered. I will be delivered. So somebody, you know, took all my stuff or, you know, uh, did something horrible to me. My, my house burned down. And for once it wasn't my fault. Uh, you know, whatever. The things happen to me that are bad. Is this permanent? No. You can handle it. My health gets bad. You can handle it. It's not going to be bad forever. Relief is coming. The cavalry is coming. But there's more to it than this. The coming of the Lord reveals the climax of our redemption. What I mean by that is, we were saved for what purpose? What is the purpose of our salvation? I speak about this a lot. My heart's desire is for all of us to live the Christian life to its heights. That's what I want. You live it. Whether you know all the theologies and doctrines, I'm not concerned about that. We'll learn, we'll learn them. Not all of us know them all. Not all of us know them all thoroughly either. But my heart's desire is that all of us live in the heights that are the spiritual life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Uh, faithfulness. I always leave one out, right? Self-control. Uh, and there's more to the fruit of the Spirit than that. God's fruit in us, that we bear much fruit, that we do good works, that we are awesome witnesses of Him to the world, that we live in peace and courage and happiness. That's what I want for us. And that's not going to happen if we don't live sanctified. And that is a big theme it's really the main theme. It's an encouragement in Thessalonians. It's a main theme that Paul says, live sanctified lives even though you're persecuted. And part of the motivation that he gives them is that the Lord is returning. When the Lord returns, what will we be? Pure, holy, in heaven, forever. Right? That's our end. So, if that is our end, how should we be? 
the coming of the Lord motivates our desire for sanctification. I was made for this. You were made for this. Because it's our destiny. And God has given us everything now in time. The indwelling of the Trinity, the Word of God, spiritual gift, body of Christ, righteousness, justification, all of it has been given to us so that we can do what we've been called to do. You have it all, and so do I. To be as we will be. And you know, we will be in perfection right now. Uh, so we see this, that the coming of our Lord is not just relief. It's not only relief, but it is a clear and ple- present reminder of the climax of all things, which is our destiny. When the Lord returns at the second coming, what does he make the earth into? His kingdom. And you know, why do, oh, why does, why do so many people hate him? Because they won't be able to get away with it like they do now. All the schemers, backroom deals, all the cheating and lying and scheming to get rich and powerful, it's not going to work in the millennium. It's not going to work at all. They're going to hate the Lord for it. That's my opinion of why they hate him or will hate him. <clears throat> what is the reality of our eternity? Our final home, as the Lord said in John 14 in the upper room, I go to prepare a place for you and I will receive you unto myself in that place, in heaven. What is that place like? It's holy, it's righteous, it's pure. That's you. You're designed for it. That is our destiny. If that is the, the reality of our eternity in our final home, our final place in the kingdom of Christ in heaven, which is righteousness, justice, love, peace, joy. And Peter, and both Peter and Paul press this point. If this is our certain future, and it could come at any time, the rapture is imminent, and I believe it is, then what sort of people should we be? So look at first, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. See, sanctification is this life set apart unto God, which he has also sanctified us in position. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Nothing is going to stop the coming of the Lord and your future with him in holiness, in purity. See, heaven for us is not just like an eternal club med where it's just like this eternal uh, you know, paradise where we're just sitting in chairs all day sipping umbrella drinks, which sounds pretty cool, but even that gets boring after a while, especially in eternity. You know, it's not us floating around in clouds strumming our harps. I find that pretty cool too, but I'd get bored with that. But what is eternity? It is us in purity. It was all designed for us. It's not like God needs eternity. He is eternity. He made it for us. He made it for the human race. Mankind is his project. <laughs> and and our, we are designed for holiness, for purity. That is what we're going to be. 
And I, you know, I, I am convinced that when we're there, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to build. We're going to continue. That's what humanity is. We got to do stuff, fine, cool stuff. You know, we got to do good stuff that keeps us going. And for all of eternity, we will be. But in purity, in holiness, in righteousness. That is God's design for all humanity. Hence, why he saved us. So, as in... Um, oh, I missed the slide. All right. Psalm uh, 81.11 on the board. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, Israel would walk in my ways. Listen to me. This word shama in, in Hebrew, it means not only hearing audibly, it means hearing with obedience. It always means that. Actually, Hebrew doesn't have an extra word for obey. God always uses hear. He uses hear and he expects obedience. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. That's where it comes from. So, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Uh, Long before this, when Israel had been released from Egypt, uh, Israel heard the voice of God at Sinai, and God spoke from Sinai the Ten Commandments. And it scared the bejesus out of them. I guess that's appropriate. So it scared them to death, and they said, Moses, you talk to God, and then you talk to us. And it turns out that in Deuteronomy 5 that God said they spoke well when they said that. But what they also said in, in, at the mountain at Sinai, they said, uh, <clears throat> they said to Moses, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. Tell us the whole thing, and we'll hear it, and we'll do it. We'll shema, and we'll do it. And then God says of them, oh, that they had such a heart in them. Why does God want this in us? He designed us for it. This is him. right? He, he is the word. right? He's the living word. He wants us not just to hear, but to do. To do it. He said, ah, oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. A blessing that comes along with obedience. It's no different in this age. So that God's word is given to us so that we can be like him. He designed us for it. Now, in the Old Testament, they, they looked forward to this day coming. That's what in, in Israel, they had, two, they had their age and the age to come. They only thought of two ages in Israel. And we live in the age where you know, the Lord has finished his work and we are blessed with the new covenant in his blood. We are blessed with the indwelling spirit of God that was promised to Israel long, long ago. We have it. They will have it too in the future. That's after the second coming. But we have been gifted with spiritual blessings of the new covenant that have designed us, made us, we're made new creatures in the image of Christ. And, and, and so this is what God desires for the human race. And when the Lord returns, he's going to make it that way. Right? No one's going to stop him. He, was, he called you as faithful to bring it to pass. It's going to happen. 
So God says to us, and we'll see this in Peter here just in a minute, if these things are to be this way, meaning the future and eternity, how should we be now? So my certain destiny is holiness and purity. The Lord could come right. It never never works. One of these days it'll work. In heaven you'll be like, Joe, that was that was good. Uh no, uh, the Lord could come in any minute, and then bam, we're there. And what are we in? We're in holiness and purity and righteousness. We're at peace, filled with joy, encouraging one another, loving one another, comforting one another. Right? No barrier, no conflict. And yet we read in the New Testament that we're to be just like that now. As Paul wrote, my favorite to always quote is Ephesians 5.1. Be perfect, not, not be perfect, that's in uh, Matthew 5. <laughs> Imitate your Father who is in heaven. Imitate your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 5.1. So if our destiny is heaven's holiness and if our Lord could return in any minute and transfer us into it, and if God has given us now everything that pertains to a holy life, what sort of people should we be? And this gets to the true motivation, which is send your motivation where you want it to be. It's not fear. You know, I said I had that motivation. I'm going to lose rewards. I don't want to lose rewards. And that is somewhat of a motivation, but it's not the best motivation. Because in essence, if I'm worried about losing heavenly rewards, my, my concentration is on me. It's not not really pure motivation. What purely is motivating motivation is to truly be on board with who God has made you to be and what He has called you to. The fact that you love it, you love that calling. This is how humanity was always designed to be, and I am set up to be that. And the rewards in it are glorious. This walk with your Father, with your Lord every day. Clearly fellowshipping. Clearly near to Him. Clearly able to say without a a hesitation, I am not Mike Chagru's son. That's my father, in case you were wondering. (laughs) I am not Mike Chagru's son. I am a son of the Father. That is my identity. And I still honor my mother and my father. But what did Jesus say? Anybody loves father or mother more than me? He's not worthy of me. Why is that? See, and at that time, love meant honor. It wasn't just affection. It was who you honored. You honor your father and your mother more than me. But he is your creator. Now, notice this verse, Colossians 3, 4. Uh, we have time. If you wanted to turn there, obviously you could. Uh, Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So this revealing of the Lord, does this not mean either, well, it could mean rapture, it could mean second coming, it sounds more like second coming, but, you know, Paul here is not distinguishing between the two. What Paul cares about 
is that the Lord is going to reveal Himself. And when He does, you are revealed with Him in what? His glory. Right? His glory. So, in his, this means that, for instance, if you, verse 1 says, if you have been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3.1, if you have been raised up with Christ, and it's a first-class condition, what we call in the Greek, and it means that, yes, you have. All, have, all believers have died with him and been risen with him. So have you been raised up with Christ? Every, new t- every believer should say yes, without a doubt. If you have been, then you will be revealed with him in glory. So if that's what I'm going to be, should I throw my life into something that is apart from the Father, meaning not sanctified? It doesn't make any sense. See, that's where you get to true motivation. Is that I say, well, I've been designed for this, and it is my certain future. Where do you see me? Wait till I see you. Will we recognize? That's what people have the question: Will we recognize each other? Well, of course we will. Man, you never look so good. Well, yeah, but that's true of all of us. What is this glory? Like I'm more handsome? I hope I am. But you know what? I'm not going to really care. I hope. No, I'm sure I won't. No vanity. <laughs> but. You know, what am I going to be? Well, what is that glory? What is it? That's a great question that you can answer for yourself. Verse 2 says that our life has forever been hid with Christ. You know, I can say forever because the verb's in the perfect tense. Forever hidden with Christ. You know what that means? Think of before the world. Before he created the world. Before Genesis 1.1. There's a trinity. In the Son of God, even that far back, call it eternity past, your life is with him. It has always been. We know this also because we've been called or elected before the foundation of the world. So, it boggles my mind. I can't really understand the mechanics of that, but... I know that my life, my life, has been hid with him for all time. That means it's got to be a pretty awesome life. And therefore, I should find out what it is. And that's another thing that's also revealed here, is that if your life is hid with Christ, meaning also, you know, it's, it's not really hidden anymore. It was hid, but now it's revealed because his work is finished on Calvary. Calvary, that, you know, it's now you can find it. And I can find it. And if it's hid with him, and it has been for all eternity past, you find him, you find your life. And that's why he gave it. He said, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit to reveal the Father and me. And when we find him, you're going to find you. So Colossians 3.4 means that all believers will be revealed with him in glory when he is revealed. And that glory means the light of holiness, righteousness, and purity. And if that is true, what sort of people should we be? Now go forward to Second Peter chapter 3. I'll try to get this all in time. And after this, we'll 
Yeah. Look at 2 Peter 3.11. Peter now, Peter's going not to the rapture of the second coming, but even farther. And he's going to the end. The end of the end where God ends human history. And he says, uh, and I didn't include that in my, my notes here like a, like a dummy. So I have, please hold. I don't know why I didn't put it in there. So, in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That is the end. I always chuckle because God said he'd never flood the earth again. And it's almost like he he winked and he said, I'm going to burn it. Burn it instead. Okay, so verse 11 Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells and which also we will dwell. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, meaning that, meaning that, why doesn't he just, or as a friend of mine said many years ago, I wish he would just flush the toilet. <laughs> I always love that phrase. Uh, you know, why doesn't he come now? Well, you know, if he came before you were born, you're out of luck. Became, you know, we're out of luck, so we, we should appreciate his patience. So That's what he means here. Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, not just your salvation, but others. The longer he delays, the longer he waits. Every day someone is saved on this earth. Every day multiple people are saved on this earth. So just as our also beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So what sort of people should you be? With all of this and and the gifts that we've been given and knowing that we're going to be delivered and knowing that the Lord is coming back, the cavalry is coming, this should be easy. Holy living should be easy. But it's a struggle. Why? Well, God has left the enemies on earth also and there's one living right in you. Your nature of sin or your sin nature or your flesh, whatever you want to call it opposes God, opposes righteousness, opposes purity. And God says you must conquer it. By your choices, with the power of God, you're not alone in this. You always have to remember, until he returns, he is with you, in you. What all the New Testament says, Christ is on us, he's in us, and he's with us. Uh, So you've you've got all the power in the world to overcome the flesh. It takes faith and desire. right? And where's the desire coming from? This is the desire. The desire is, I want what my destiny is now. I want to walk with my Lord now. I don't want to wait for heaven to walk with Him, to have fellowship with Him, to know Him, and therefore find myself. I don't want to wait 
for heaven to actually be the man or the woman that God has designed me to be. It's, but it's for certain that I will be. And therein you find the desire. But you also have to make choices. So we have the flesh, the world, and the devil. They are opposing. Always opposing. Um, so, we'll get to the last part. There's some of my notes I'm going to skip here. If you're following them. For the sake of time. Last part is the coming of the Lord reminds us that we lack the ability to judge anyone. So while we're opposed, right, in Thessalonica they are severely opposed. And Paul says to them, when the Lord returns, he's going to judge all your enemies. What's the implication? You do not. None of us have the ability. The kingdom, right, we're members of the kingdom of God. There's always been a lot of confusion about, you know, is the church a kingdom? Uh, but look around. Does this look like the kingdom of God to you in this world? Obviously not. Can the church be a kingdom? Well, you know, we, we have the behavior of the kingdom. We have the holiness of the kingdom. We have the righteousness of the kingdom. We have the truth of the kingdom. But we're not, there's no physical kingdom here. Not until the Lord returns. He's the one who's going to make the kingdom, not us. It's that amillennialism. We'll get into that a little bit this week, which is that, you know, God left the church to make the kingdom. And then he, so, in other words, Jesus is waiting for us to clean up the world so that he can return. And thank God that's not true. <laughs> it's not. I, it, it's not. And, you know, I, I, w- I would be very. Uh, very convinced that that is not true. Uh, the Lord cleans up this place, not us. So, if the kingdom is yet future, and what has happened at times throughout church history is that the church thought they should rule. Right. So, famous examples are well, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and um, especially the Pope, there's a Pope Gregory Seventh that I read about not too long ago. I don't know why then even the number sticks in my mind because he was such a strong man. Misguided, yes, but he established the papacy as, I don't bow to kings, kings bow to me. He actually had the emperor get on his knees in the snow before him and beg forgiveness. Pope Gregory Seventh. And then he forgave him, meaning that even ugh, ridiculous is so ridiculous. Anyway, but there's a Calvin's Geneva. You know, he's going to run. He tried to run the city. You know, that's the theory that the church should rule, and what that means is, is that the church should judge. But we don't have the ability. And what happens when we try to rule is generally evil. Evil things happen, and we. Even if evil things don't necessarily happen, when the church tries to rule and becomes political or a government, we lose our mission. The mission of the church is to save souls. The mission of the church is to take those souls and mold them into the image of Christ. To take the poor and the weak and the destitute and the rich and and whoever and to show them 
that blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. The church's mission is to save people, not to rule people. That sounds like somebody said that. I'm going to get to that. <laughs> we don't have the ability to judge. So we have relief from the Lord. The cavalry's coming. We have the, the propensity, the motivation, the righteousness, and then surrounded by all the unrighteous and also the righteous that we would love to judge. Anyway, we realize that we don't have the ability to judge. And so in, in the benefit to this, your soul, there's the psychology of relief. I have courage and I have peace. This isn't going to go on forever no matter what it is. I'm going to get relieved. The Marines are just behind me, which is Jesus. <laughs> uh, I, have, I desire sanctification because I've been made for it. And I lose the pressure and the mental anguish that comes from trying to judge people. Right? We all know this. It's exhausting. Judging people. Rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt, rather than being, what are we told to be with people? Patient, enduring, uh, blessing our enemies, praying for our enemies, all of that. No ability to judge. Christ is the only one who judges. Mortal sinful men, though saved, and even if you're the most mature believer the world has ever seen, you cannot judge or rule others. It doesn't mean you can't have a position of authority. That's not what I mean. It means that you cannot rule their souls. Perfection and infallibility or an infallible penetrating wisdom is what is needed for right judging. And on this side of heaven, no one's ever going to have it. Only when we're changed fully to Christ's image, which will be immortal and incorruptible, then and only then can we exercise heaven's authority. Right? And God promised, Jesus promised, you will rule with me. Not now, in the future. Say, how many, have you met, I've been one, have you met spiritual bullies trying to boss you around, rule you? Christians who think they know better than you and they're going to rule you? When we're supposed to bear with the weak, Romans 14.1, Romans 15.1. To love one another, support one another. Uh, Anyway, only when we're fully, changed fully to Christ's image, immortal and incorruptible, then and only then can we exercise this heavenly authority. Confusion on this point has led to the promotion of the church as a kingdom and has caused great pain in the world and a, a great damage to the gospel. If we're trying to rule people, We're not really promoting the gospel of Christ. The job of the church in this age is not to rule, but to save. That's who said it. Jesus Christ said it. John 3.17 For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now, what an amazing statement. You know, right after the famous John 3.16, uh, <clears throat> and then we say, wait a minute, Jesus is going to judge the world. 
and he most certainly is, but not at his first advent. And not in this age either. We don't judge anybody. We don't have the right to. Rather than try and peer into their souls and see. And, you know, of course this means at t- you, you can evaluate whether you should separate from someone or whether it's, you know, uh, as I, I like to say, the Bible's written for adults. Um, a young person marrying, the, you know, uh, dating the wrong person or getting involved in the wrong things. You're certainly judging or evaluating. But this is judging the quality and intent of someone's heart. You leave that to him. No vengeance to him. He's got the shoulders to bear it. We do not have to. And this frees us. This frees us to pursue the spiritual life the way that we should. To pursue our relationship with God and actually long for people to have that same relationship that we do. This all comes from the coming of Christ. So we get... The psychology of relief, sanctification, and no judging. These are the needed benefits of faith in the returning Christ. Whether it's rapture or second coming. Or as Peter went to, the very end of time. I'll leave the judging to him. When he comes, he will. He is going to relieve me. No matter how hard my life may get or the suffering or pressure may be, it is not forever. And there's great reward in it. I mean, there's so many passages we could look at here today. It's just you run out of time. But this, you endure under pressure. You're rewarded for this in eternity. We'll we'll see that God has has actually put us or allowed us to be put in situations where we can endure, and therefore increase our faith, the quality of our faith, and actually uh, be rewarded magnificently in life and in eternity because we have glorified Him. So in this world, we must not judge and also live sanctified. Uh, Moses sent 12 spies. I close right here. Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land and two of them came back and said, that God would deliver them, that yes, there were giants and great fortified cities and big armies and some tough-looking characters, but God will deliver us from whatever opposition or force was there. And so we too must not fear or be dismayed when we see a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad things. But ten spies said it's impossible, it's impossible. And for that reason, Israel roamed the wilderness for 40 years because they rejected it. The people rejected this. They freaked out. God is going to put us in some hairy situations, allow us to be. And there's going to be opposing people, and we're going to want to judge them. We're going to want a vengeance. Remember the coming of the Lord. Right? That coming means... He judges, not me. He relieves, not me. He has designed me to live sanctified. Despite all the opposition, he did it himself. God will deliver us. We fight the good fight, but not with sword, with faith. We fight the good fight of faith. 
And even in Paul's last letter in Second Tim, which is Second Timothy, he says, "I fight the good fight." And he mentions these guys, Alexander, the coppersmith, this guy who did Paul much harm. He said, "The Lord will deal with him." Paul was dying. He he was that was it. He was that's his last letter. I don't know if he was dying, but he was old. He was not long on this earth. And he said, "God will deal with him." But he told Timothy to beware of the guy also. So getting back to this not judging people. Exodus generation. Moses is 40 years with these people. They keep complaining. It must have been terrible. Paul, uh, sorry, God tells Moses after they drew water from a rock way back in the beginning of Exodus or mid of Exodus. I think it's around... Uh, I forget what chapter, 17 or something. But then much later on, many years later, God tells Moses to go to another rock because they're running out of water. And guess what? All the people are whining and complaining about it. Wow, shocker. Moses had it up to there with these people. And God tells Moses, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. Moses goes up to the rock with his staff and hits it twice. He wallops the rock. And he says to them, you rebels, shall we bring water from this rock? What did Moses do? He stepped into God's place. Moses decided to judge the people. And God wouldn't allow him to go into the promised land because of that. Moses took God's place. God said, speak to the rock. Now we understand, right? It wasn't just it was the people they complained about the manna after the 12 spies they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted a new leader. Moses was judged by his sister for marrying the wrong woman or so she thought. She ended up with leprosy for 7 days. Um on and on and on. They wanted meat, they wanted this, they wanted that. Moses had enough and he hit the rock twice and he called them rebels. And God says, I get to hit them and call them rebels, not you. I told you to speak to the rock. Moses stood in God's place and judged the people. He didn't have the right. He didn't have the clarity of sight to do it. Never mind the right. He's not able, and neither are we. None of us are able. The returning Lord tells us that none of us are able. Only he can do it. So, in the end, 1 John 3, 2-3, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And anyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. See, as John says here so clearly and plainly, that if our end is purity and our Lord is purity, then we now are motivated to purity. Purity is our destiny. The humble believer, therefore, should conclude that purity is what he must be now. And this is all tied to the coming of our Lord. Relief, the cavalry's coming. Sanctification, it is my destiny. And I would love to judge people, but I can't. I just don't have the ability to do it right. And so if I can't do it right. But isn't that funny? I want to judge people for what? Usually for being wrong. 
and I can't judge rightly. So if I know in my own heart, the thing I want to judge people for is being wrong. When you judge, you're wrong. You can't be thoroughly right. You don't have God's eye. So when we understand that, we'll be like, I can't judge. I just can't. Paul concludes his writing with this. This is very close to the end of his writing. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, in which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. There is a great reward in this for us who follow him. Remember that Psalm, Psalm 80, 80 something. Oh, that they would have a heart in them. Well, we'll go with Deuteronomy. He says, oh, that they would have this heart in themselves. That's exactly what God desires for us. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, guiding us in the truth of the coming of our Lord. We thank you that you're sending him and that he will be delivering us from this life, from these bodies. And because of who and what you are and who and what he is and the work that he's done. None of us have done the work or any work to deserve your blessing of salvation and deliverance. And, Father, we understand this. We thank you that through Jesus Christ our Lord, those who are saved are saved because of faith and not of works. If anybody believes upon him, he will be saved. And if anyone's listening to my voice right now who has not believed in him, I offer you the greatest invitation that is ever given. And it doesn't come from me. It comes directly from God, from heaven. That is, you can be saved. The offering is the Son of God who's become a man and has died for you. He died in your place, being judged for the sins of the whole world. And if you believe upon him, you will be saved. All your sins washed away. All that is wrong will be forgiven. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but in God's eyes, you will be righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done being judged for your sins in your place. He died and was resurrected on the third day. Believe in Him and you will be saved. And we thank you, Father, for your glorious calling upon us all. In Christ's name, amen. Wow, well done. I could tell that that was a lot. That was a lot of information. Uh, And you all did real well. I try to squeeze it all in. Uh, we'll take our offering at this time, and that'll wrap everything up. So, thank you. Um, I got a prayer request today for um, a friend of uh, Gail's. Her, her name is Cat, uh, and uh, if you would keep on your mind to pray for Cat, who is going through uh, some really rough uh, suffering at this time. And uh, if you could do that, we'll pray for her together now as we pray for our offering. Let's, let's bow. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. We give as your believer priests in worship of you and in honor of you. Uh, 
we thank you, Father. Guide us in using the funds that you give us uh, to your glory. And we lift up Kat and, and right now and ask, Father, that you deliver her and uh, bring comfort to her soul so that she will know that you will deliver, that vengeance is yours, and that, Father, uh, give her peace and also uh, resolution to the situation that she is in. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Alan, just cue it up. All the praying's been done. All the souls have been saved. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed.
there weren't so many listeners on the line, I would probably get to there are a lot of people who um, there was, yeah, yeah, three o'clock. Tuesday and Wednesday is at three. The sign has to be updated, but and then Thursday we're at night at seven. Um, and that's because people, some people can't come at three. No, no, no. So I'm doing a series now on all the New Testament books, but just more of a big picture main theme of these books. So my plan is to, you know, I'll do like a thing that I did for the But when I get to like a, a book like Romans or something. Thank you. 